Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. Oh, Mr. Rogers. I think when we come to understand, like Mr. Rogers did, what loving our neighbor really means, it changes everything. A lot of y'all know the story. I've told it a few times about Mr. Rogers, but um, he was actually on track to become a pastor. Uh, he was an ordained minister. He was going to seminary and all that stuff. And, and he understood he, this idea of what it means to love a neighbor got a hold of him so tightly. And he saw the medium of television as such an incredible way to do that that he said, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to helping people understand just how loved they are by God and by me as their neighbor. And if you've watched him before, you know that he had this just incredible way of, even if you've never met him before, even if you were separated by a TV screen, of helping you feel like he loved you and like he was your neighbor. When this idea of loving neighbor got a hold of Fred Rogers, it changed his life. And I think the same thing happens to us. When this truth takes root in our heart, we begin to see the world differently. Today is the fourth and final week of our teaching series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it's all been based off this amazing exchange between Jesus and a religious leader found in Luke's account of Jesus' life. It says this, on one occasion, an expert in the law, that's a kind of a religious leader of the time, the law was this Old Testament religious code, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And this guy answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But the religious leader wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So to answer this question from the religious leader, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. A story that is so radical, it's, it's so scandalous that it has transcended time and place to become an anecdote used by people all over the world for hundreds of years to illustrate what it looks like to love our neighbor. Even the term Good Samaritan has become synonymous with loving people really well, right? Like, oh, they did a good deed. They're such a good Samaritan, right? So for three weeks, we've been breaking down various aspects of the story of the Good Samaritan, attempting to figure out what it really means for us to love our neighbor. In week one, we learned what love really is, that it's not just some affectionate feeling, it's the pursuit of someone's ultimate good, right? When the Samaritan encounters the guy who's been beaten up and left half dead, he doesn't have this like affectionate feeling predetermined for him. He doesn't, he doesn't know this man, right? It's not a loved one. So love is not just an affectionate feeling, it's a wish for someone's ultimate good. So he steps in and he cares for him. That was week one. Week two, we learned who 
we are called to love. This question from the religious leader, but who really is my neighbor, was answered, and it's simply everyone. The good Samaritan and the Jewish man he helped were sworn enemies. They hated each other. So in this story, Jesus uses the disdain between Jews and Samaritans to illustrate that loving like Jesus calls us to the radical inclusion of all people, that we love everyone regardless of anything about them. In week three, we learned how we are supposed to love. So week one was what, week two was who, week three was how we're supposed to love, and the Good Samaritan taught us how to do this by the way that he loved uh, this Jewish man who'd been beaten up and left for dead, right? Luke 10, 33 and 34 says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him, bandaged his wounds, and so on and so forth. He saw him, he felt compassion for him, and then he moved to action. Those are the same three steps we need to take when we come across someone needing help. We gotta see the need, we have to feel compassion for them, and then we have to act. That's what last week was all about, putting those three steps into action in our everyday lives. So together, we've looked at the what, the who, and the how of neighbor love. Today, we conclude this series by looking at the where. Where do I love? Now, we've actually touched on the where piece uh, of this pretty much every Sunday for the last three weeks, right? We've talked a little bit about loving those in our home, our family and our friends, the people kind of closest to us. We've talked about loving the people that we work with, the people we go to school with, people in our immediate proximity in those places. We've talked about loving our literal next door neighbor or in the apartment next to us. We've talked about loving our sisters and brothers who are experiencing incredible needs, things like homelessness and poverty and a lack of clean water. Last week we talked about doing for one and we wish we could do for everyone. So we've, we've talked a little bit about this where. But there is one really important where we haven't covered yet. And that where is right here at our church, our church family. So this morning we wrap up our series by asking the question, how do I love my neighbor at Restore? How do I love my neighbor and my church family? And answering this question starts with an understanding of what we really are here at Restore. And if you've been here before or even just seen the video that we play at the beginning every week, you know that we use the word family when we talk about our church because the church is in a building. This is a middle school, just in case you didn't realize that. So this is literally not a church building. But the church is not a building. The, the church is not programmed. The church is not a pastor. The church is a group of people. And throughout the scripture, this group of people is repeatedly called a family. In Paul's letter to the very diverse church in Ephesus, he talks about how people who come from all different backgrounds and religions and nations and languages and worldviews have now come together as one family united by Jesus. Here's what he says. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. Listen, you are members of God's family. Members of God's family. This is true of us too. Through faith in Jesus, we are members of God's family. But for many of us, it doesn't stop there, right? We're not just members of God's family globally. We are also members of this family locally. We are family members here at Restore. 
Now, we don't have a long, drawn-out membership process here at our church. We believe the same requirements for being a part of God's family should be in place for being a part of our family, and that is simply a desire to be a part of it. So if you want to be a part of God's family, Jesus says, yes, you're in. Come and join me as I transform the world with my love. Follow me. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Follow me. If you want to be a part of Restore's family, we say yes, you're in. Come and join us as Jesus works in and through us to transform the world with his love. If you want to be a part of it, you can be a part of it. This week I was thinking about some of you who have said yes to that invitation, not just to be a part of the church globally, but to be a part of this church locally. Some of you who have jumped in and joined the Restore family over the years, and as I was thinking about it, I got a little emotional. Shocking, I know. Because like I said, church isn't buildings or or programs or preachers. Church is people. And as I thought about our church, our church family, what came to mind wasn't some faceless mass of people. It was individuals, real people that I know and that I love. People like Nick and Laura. Nick and Laura were there the very first time when we even talked about what it means to be a family. There were about 20 of us that gathered a little over four years ago and talked about starting a church. I'll never forget our first interest gathering. It's so crazy. We're doing an interest gathering today for Moon Tower. It's going to launch on campus at UT. We did interest gatherings four or five years ago for this church. I'll never forget that first one back in the summer of 2015. Matt and I, our worship pastor up there, were kind of giving our whole little spiel, right, talking about all the big dreams we had for, for Restore and how we we're going to partner with the community and help people and love people really well and all that stuff. And, and we ended and, and we asked for questions. Now, I, I thought we did such a good job. I doubted there would be any questions, you know. We'd really covered it. But Nick raises his hand. And Nick says something to the effect of, uh, you didn't really talk about anything for kids at all that whole time. So we have kids is there going to be stuff for kids? Now, Matt didn't have kids at the time. I had a six-month-old that just kind of went everywhere with me. I didn't really think about it. And so I was like, yes, we will, Nick, 100%, no doubt. And it's going to be the best stinking kids program you've ever seen. It's going to be incredible. And I had no idea how we were going to do that. But, and I think Nick knew. I really do. I think Nick and Laura both saw in my face like, oh, I don't know about this guy. Looks like he made that up on the spot. But they didn't let that stop them. They understood that when you were a part of a family, you look for opportunities to serve. In that stage, right, there were plenty. Laura started and led our connection team for almost three years. They, to this day, lead a restored group. They organize events for men and for women in our church and so much more. There is not an area of our church that Nick and Laura have not touched with service over four years. I think about people like Tiffany. Tiffany serves on our connection team. She does connection setup. She does teardown. She does greeting. Tiffany and Mason just had their fifth child, fifth child. And their family of seven shares one vehicle. So many times Tiffany will catch the bus to come early and serve. Literally weeks after she gave birth to her son, she was here. She was serving. Because Tiffany understands what an incredible privilege it is to be a part of a family and to welcome new people to the family when they walk in the door. I think about people like CG. CG gives volunteer leadership to all of our events 
here at Restore. She runs point on every major thing we do, including our Christmas bash back in December, which had over 400 people in attendance at it. She also started a ministry for survivors of sexual assault and abuse out of our church that has now turned into a full-fledged nonprofit organization called Louder Than Silence. Now, her husband, Stephen, is no slouch either. He was playing the bass up here just a second ago. He serves in our band, and he leads a restore group for people who've had hard church experiences. I think of people like Ben and Chelsea. Been here since the very beginning. In fact, along with Matt Gonzalez, our worship pastor, Matt, Ben, and Chelsea were the three people in the band every week for, I think, like 18 months, maybe two years. That was the band, the three of them. Ben and Chelsea got here 7 a.m. every Sunday morning, set everything up, led us in worship, stayed after, tore everything down for 18 months every week. They still serve in the band, but now they also lead a restore group. They serve on our leadership team and so many other places I I cannot even keep track of them. I think about people like Kelly, who leads a restore group. She serves on our board of directors, and she leads our largest volunteer team, the connection team, with over 60 people who are a part of it. She does it all as a volunteer because she understands what it means to be a part of a family. I think about Chris, who serves on our setup and teardown team not once but twice every single month. And last year, I know he remembers this, we were having trouble finding volunteers for that team. He came early to set up and stayed late to tear down like five or six consecutive weeks, right? Because Chris understands that when you're a part of a family, you look for opportunities to serve. I think about Bob and Kate. Did you know that we have people who will sit down and and talk through the hardest parts of life with anyone, any of you who need help? At a drop of a hat, they will sit down and they will talk through it with you. Kate is one of those people, and she's so qualified to do it, it is ridiculous. She has been on church staffs and in leadership positions her entire life, but here at Restore, she volunteers all of her time. She also serves on the connection team, and I just saw her checking kids in, and the kids team just a second ago. I didn't even know that she was on that team. Her husband, Bob, has had an amazing career. He's consulted Fortune 500 companies on leadership and strategy for many, many years, but he knows that that does not make him too good to serve in his church family. He helps out our production team, even driving across town every week to our Thursday production meetings when we were a little shorthanded, just to be there to help out. Think about Sally. Even as a college student, you could not stop Sally from serving. And I think there were some times where she even maybe skipped class or didn't study for a test, and her parents are here, and I'm sorry about it. It was not my fault. (laughs) She serves on our production team in every single position back there, including producing, which means being in charge of basically every single thing that happens, audio, video, lighting, everything on a Sunday. Then she came to us in her last semester of college and asked if she could be an intern. Obviously, we said yes. And she took over all leadership of our social media, including designing our entire summer mixtape series this last summer. I think about people like Jen. We have something here called leadership development. It's a six-week course designed to help people understand how to lead like Jesus. And even though she is insanely busy running her own public relations firm, Jen has led it alongside me every semester for four years. 
except for one when she was running for U.S. Congress. Jen is also a Sunday lead on our connection team because she understands that when you are a part of a family, you look for opportunities to serve. I think about Kevin. Kevin teaches our late elementary group of Restore Kids. Challenging age, for sure. And he is the first sub for anyone who has to miss. Sonia, our kids and family pastor, has told me, anytime someone calls in, Kevin has said, you make me the first call if anybody has to miss. And that means that sometimes he'll be out of town on a weekend, he'll be hours away, like hunting or doing something like that, and he'll get up on a Sunday morning, he's done this multiple times, at 3 a.m., and drive five hours to make it in on time and teach your kids. He's also an engineer and an MBA, and so he also volunteers as our treasurer, keeps our books, makes sure everything is together. As I was thinking about these amazing people and so many others who I simply don't even have time to name this morning. I'm literally looking at all of your faces and there are people, (laughs) hundreds of you, that could be on this list. I asked myself, what do these folks have in common? Because they're different in a lot of ways, right? Like the video we play every week says, they are different in age, in race, in gender, in socioeconomic status, in sexual orientation, in political affiliation, in background, and in lifestyle. It is an incredibly diverse group of people. So what do they all have in common? I think it's simply this. When they see a need, they move toward it. When they see a need, they move toward it. Like the Good Samaritan, these are people who see a need and then move toward it. Remember the priest and the Levite in the story? They saw the need, and they moved to the other side of the street. They moved away from it. The people that I'm talking about see a need, and they move toward it. Because you don't move away from needs when you're a part of a family. You move toward them. And there are tons of people like this here at Restore. I could be up here all day telling stories about them. This is what it looks like to be a church family. So my question for us is what gets in the way? What keeps us from serving and loving our church family and and everyone else who visits Restore? I think there are three main reasons. Number one is busyness. I think we are so overcommitted that we think that we have no margin to serve. I think that's true for people. I think it is. I think there are people who are so busy and and even serving in other places outside of our church family that they they just can't right now. And I get that. Life has seasons. A lot of us have kids that are overwhelming. And that, that just happens. I get it. But for a lot of us, I think it actually might be more about priorities than about busyness. But I'll talk more about that in just a second. That's the first one, busyness. Number two not to be harsh, but I think that number two is pride. I think that occasionally we think serving in certain ways is just kind of below us, you know? I think we think that, gosh, I, I've put in my time. Like, I'm, I'm kind of above this now. I've had kids. I've done the whole thing. I'm not going to go back there again and, you know, clean boogers and, change diaper, like I can't do that, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I'm above that now. 
And the last one I think is, I think it's just kind of selfishness. And I think that if we're really honest, we would just rather do stuff that's about us than stuff that's about others. I think that's true for a lot of us. We'd really just, we'd just rather do stuff that's about us than stuff that's about others. But these are not characteristics of a family member. That's not what it looks like to love people like Jesus. When Jesus was asked what it looks like to really love your neighbor as yourself, he told the story of the good Samaritan. An incredible story, yes, and, and, and we obviously think so because we've spent the last three weeks talking about it, but even still, listen, it's just a story. It's just a story. Anyone can tell a story about what it means to serve and love people, but not everyone is willing to put their money where their mouth is. And often here at Restore, we say that we don't want to just talk about things. We want to be about things. I want to spend the rest of our time showing you where we get our inspiration from for that. Because Jesus didn't just give lip service. He didn't just tell stories about loving and serving others. He actually did it. He didn't just talk about it. He was about it. And I want you to look with me at John's account of Jesus' life. It's chapter 13. It's starting in verse 1. You can have your Bibles or phones or anything like that. The verses will also be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along. Verse 1, John chapter 13. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and he now showed them, listen, the full extent of his love. So these disciples that are missioned here are, are the people closest to Jesus. They walked side by side with him for three years, doing ministry, caring for each other, caring for the world around them. Not his family by blood, but his family nonetheless. Kind of like a, a little church family you might say. The author John sets this next part up by saying that we are about to see the full extent of Jesus' love. I want you to hold on to that phrase, that's really important. Obviously his love culminates with him laying his life down on the cross, but this is the first thing that Jesus does to show his family and us by proximity the full extent of his love. It says it was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. Jesus was the most powerful person who ever lived because he wasn't just a person, he was God in the flesh. He knew that he had everything that he needed to do, everything he needed to do. With that knowledge, he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. So they're about to eat the Passover meal, and the servant who usually washes the feet in this particular household wasn't around. We know from another passage that the disciples are kind of borrowing this room that they're in. It's called the upper room if you've got Bible knowledge and all that kind of stuff. So they're up in the upper room. They're kind of borrowing this house, this room, from another person. So it's certainly possible that the foot-washing servant of the household was busy downstairs with the homeowner's guests. But either way, Jesus and his little family here are left without a foot washer. Now, our first thought here is, well, why don't they just skip the foot washing tonight, right? 
Like it's just kind of a weird ritual. They probably don't really need to do it. We don't wash our feet before we eat. But that's why it's so important to understand the culture in which Jesus lived. Nobody in this culture ate a meal before washing their feet. And they did this for two reasons. Number one, their feet were gross, super gross, right? People didn't have shoes during the time. That Some had kind of like primitive sandals, but, but most were barefoot. They walked around in the dirt and the mud and the animal feces and the trash that lined every walkway because they didn't have roads. So that's number one, their feet were gross. Number two is they didn't sit in chairs around a table like we do. In our society, we're much less concerned with people's feet while we eat because they're usually inside of socks, inside of shoes, and then a few feet below us hidden under a table. We cannot see them while we eat. It's a great thing, right? Culture has gone in a positive direction, I think, with this. But that's not how they ate in the first century Near East. It's actually not how a lot of cultures still eat to this day. They ate like this. Around a table, reclined, laying down. If you can notice, their feet, some of them are kind of back, but they also have some of them kind of close to each other there, right? Instead of sitting on chairs around a high table, they reclined on the ground around a low table. Now you can better understand just how important this practice of foot washing before meals really was. But I bet you can also imagine just how lowly this job was, right? And it absolutely was. In fact, it was a job reserved for the lowest-ranking servant in the household. So I want you to imagine yourself in the upper room that night. You're one of Jesus' disciples. You know that it's Passover meal time, that the table's been set, the food is there, and you know foot-washing servant's not here. Foot-washing servant's not here. And you also know that you can't eat the Passover meal until the feet get washed. I don't know about you, but I would have been looking around the room trying to do some quick math, right? Like, oh, I, I know that James and John and Peter, they're like Jesus's like inner circle people, right? He's definitely not gonna make them wash the feet. Yeah, they, they, they've gotta be safe. And then you've got like Andrew, Andrew's Peter's brother, so there's probably some nepotism going on there, right? Like he's probably locked in with Peter and James and John. He's probably not gonna get the foot washing thing. Matthew, he's this rich tax collector. He's probably funding this whole operation. There's no way Jesus is gonna make him wash the feet, right? But Thomas, that guy's always asking questions. He's doubting stuff all the time. Maybe, maybe he'll, he'll make him. And then Judas, that guy's so sketchy, right? He's the treasurer, but we all know he's skimming off the top. I, he should be the one that washes the feet for all the money he's stolen from here. But just as I am trying to rank everyone in the room and make sure that I'm not the one that's going to have to do the foot washing, I see Jesus out of the corner of my eye stand up from the table, take off his robe, grab a towel from the floor, fill a basin with water, and say, come on, I'm going to wash feet tonight. And just like that, Jesus, the leader and Lord of us all, places himself in the position of the lowest servant. No one else in the room was thinking like a family member. No one else was jumping up, ready to grab the towel and grab the basin and start washing the feet. They were not looking for opportunities to serve, but Jesus was. 
And if you know much about the story of Jesus, you know this was just one of many times that he looked for opportunities to serve because you see, he understood what it was like to be a part of a family. Remember all those things I I mentioned at the beginning that get in the way of us serving? Jesus could have claimed any or all of those excuses, and they would have been way more legit than any of us, right? More than any of us, he was busy. He's super busy. He's about like three or four hours from getting arrested and then dying on the cross, and then he has to like, you know, go down there, and then he's got to come back up, and he's got to get raised from the dead. Like, he was busy. He had things going on. He could have been like, I don't have time to wash feet right now. I'm about to pay for the sins of the whole world. I'm about to save the planet. Somebody else wash feet. I got things to do. He was busy. But he didn't say that because he knew that serving his family was so important. More than any of us, Jesus could have claimed that serving like this was below him. He is literally the creator and sustainer of the universe, the author and perfecter of our faith. If anyone is exempt from serving, it has to be him. But he knew that no one is above serving. Like the old saying goes, if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. Jesus knew. He knew how important it was to serve his family. And finally, more than any of us, Jesus could have said that really he's the one that needed to be served in this moment. Instead of spending his time serving others, he was about to face the culmination of evil on the cross. He was about to save the whole world. He was gonna go through something harder than most of us could ever imagine. He could have said, I just need some me time, you know? Like, I just need some self-care. Just let me sit back and get my feet washed because I'm about to have to do some really difficult stuff. That's not what he did. He knows that when you're a part of a family, you serve each other. And he knew that as the leader of that family, he needed to show everyone else just how important serving each other is. So he grabs a towel. He fills a basin with water and he starts washing feet. And then comes my very favorite part of the story. It's Peter's turn to have his feet washed. You can imagine just kind of everybody going, right? Peter comes up and he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? This is just a sentence in scripture, but you gotta understand like the the incredulousness with which Peter would have asked this question. Like, "Are are you serious? You're gonna wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now there are lots of varying interpretations of what Jesus meant when he told Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Some think it's this kind of double meaning about baptism or about salvation or about imputed righteousness or or something else like that. But I actually think the primary meaning of this is way less complex than we like to make it. Jesus is telling Peter and everyone else listening that his family is going to be a family that serves each other. His family is going to be a family that serves each other. And if Peter is not willing to be a part of that, then he has no part with him. Any family united around Jesus, like the one that many of us are a part of here at Restore, is all about serving. Laying our lives down for each other especially in ways we think we're too good for. 
So Jesus finishes washing the feet of the disciples, and then he tells them why he did it. Verse 12. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I'm doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I I am teacher and Lord, because that's what I am. And and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, listen, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And with that, Jesus gave every family of faith their mandate. Do as I have done to you. Serve each other and serve the world around you. This was the mission of Jesus from the very beginning. It's why he told his disciples pretty early on that for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and this is what it means to be a part of a family. And it's a huge part of what it means to be a part of this family here at Restore. That's what all those people I told stories about earlier understand. That's why Kevin wakes up at 3 a.m. to drive here some Sunday mornings. That's why Tiffany catches the bus. They know what it means to be a part of a family. So they seek opportunities to serve. But I think they also know something else. And it's something that kind of feels like a secret but it's actually how Jesus ends his teaching about serving each other in this passage. Here's what he says. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's saying, I I washed your feet. None of y'all are greater than me. You need to wash each other's feet. But now that you know these things, listen, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed if you serve each other. Now that you know, Listen, now that you know that we're a family and families serve each other, Jesus is saying you will be blessed if you do this. There is blessing in foot washing. Let me say that again. There is great blessing in foot washing. There is abundance and fulfillment and life-giving purpose. Let me give you some examples. When you're greeting on the connection team in the lobby, and you welcome someone who has never before been accepted in a church. They've gone to a bunch of them, maybe they've been kicked out of a few. Maybe every time they come into one, they get weird looks. People get uncomfortable, people kind of shift in their seat, and you get to be the one at that door right out there that makes them feel welcome at a church for the very first time in their life. You will experience blessing like I cannot describe. You will be blessed. When you get here at 7 a.m. for the setup team and you you start putting this whole thing together and then you get to sit back in the seats and watch someone experience for the love of Jesus for the first time in a chair that you put out, I'm telling you, you will experience joy in that moment that will keep you smiling all day long. There is blessing in foot washing. When you're running song lyrics on the production team or you're singing in the worship band and you look out and you see more than 100 people lifting their voices to Jesus along with you, you will experience fulfillment like never before. When you're working with a group of second graders 
back in Restore Kids Gym and, and you get to tell a little girl that Jesus loves her and that he is there for her no matter what she is going through and you watch as that little light bulb goes on in her mind and she really grasps that truth for the very first time and the joy that comes from Jesus spreads and a smile across her face you will experience a sense of purpose that is almost impossible to experience in other places. There is great blessing in foot washing. Today is the last day of our Find My Place initiative. We do this every year, at the beginning of the year. Over 100 of you, like John said, have already jumped in to this and filled out cards. My hope is that every single one of us find our place in the family here at Restore. My hope is that this truth sinks in for every single one of us and we begin to understand that there is great blessing in foot washing because I want you to understand and know and feel the joy of what it means to be a part of a family. And I want you to experience the great blessing that comes when you give of yourself and you serve others. So that's it for me. I'm gonna pray. And then two of our other pastors, John and Sonia, are gonna come up and tell you a little bit more about how to find your place. And pray with me. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for the incredible example of Jesus. Thank you that he didn't just talk about it, that he was about it. He didn't just tell stories about good Samaritans, that he was one. That that night in the upper room, when the feet needed to be washed, God, he was the first one to jump up, to wrap the towel around his waist, to fill the basin with water and begin washing people's feet because he knew Number one, that's what you do when you're a part of a family. And number two, there is great blessing in foot washing. I pray that for every single person in here, every single person who is a part of the family here at Restore, that we would come to understand that truth, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and our spirit, deep in our bones. That when you are a part of a family, you seek out opportunities to serve. You move toward need, not away from it. And I pray that each and every one of us would experience the great blessing that you have for us as we step out in faith and serve. In Jesus' name I pray.